You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. If you turn your Bible to Luke chapter 11, this is the beginning of prayer week. So we're going to look at a text this morning, one of the great chapters and sections on prayer. And I want to thank you for your giving to Lottie Moon. These, these videos remind us that these are real people with very real ministries on the ground in places that need the gospel. And you have given $250,000 thus far. We'll still be taken up for another month. But I am so grateful for you because 100% of that money, none of it goes to administrative cost. None of it comes to us. It goes straight to the missionaries on the ground so they can continue their ministry uh, to peoples who do not have access to the gospel as, as we do. And so thank you very much for that. So we're going to be looking at verses 5 to 13 this morning. But for context, and we looked at this last January, verses 1 to 4, let us read Luke 11, 1 to 4. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. As John taught his disciples, and he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Let's pray. Father, we pray, hallowed be your name indeed this morning. Your kingdom come. We pray, Lord, that this passage, verses 5 to 13, would meet, would meet each one of us according to our need. There are some here who do not know you as Father, and they need to be converted to, to you through the, through the life-giving and cross-bearing work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that they would come to Christ this morning. Others, Lord, know you as Father, but they don't know you as well as they could if their prayer lives were more fervent. That could be said of all of us. And we pray, Lord, today that you would strengthen that, that you would sanctify us. Jesus said, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Thy word is truth. And I pray that truth today would sanctify us, particularly today in the area of prayer, individually and corporately. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jim Cimbala, the founding pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle Church in New York, in his book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, maybe you've read that book, recounts how he and his wife, Carol, went through the toughest two and a half years of their lives. Their daughter, Chrissy, had been a model child, but at the age of 16, she began to stray. She began to draw away from her mom and dad, 
and she began to draw away from God. She eventually left home as a mid-teen, and there were nights when they had no idea where she was. As it worsened, Jim did all he knew to do. He, he scolded her. He would yell at her. He argued with her. He tried to control her with money. Nothing worked. She became increasingly hardened, and her boyfriend was nothing they wanted for her. Uh, they were deeply discouraged, depressed, and scared. And then God impressed on him to stop talking to others about her. Just pray, just pray. And he was to make no further contact with her until God acted. Just pray. And a central emphasis of Jim's prayer life was the corporate prayer time on Tuesday nights at Brooklyn Tab. Every Tuesday night. In fact, it was so important to him, he would not take outside speaking engagements if it conflicted with Tuesday night, Tuesday night prayer. One Tuesday night at prayer, an usher brought a note to him from a woman. A woman had written, Pastor Simba, I feel impressed that we should stop the meeting and I'll pray for your daughter. At first he was reluctant because he didn't want to make the prayer meeting about him and his family, but he decided to pick up the mic and tell the church about his situation. He said, the truth of the matter, although I haven't talked much about it, my daughter is very far from God these days. She thinks up is down and down is up. Dark is light and light is dark. But I know God can break through to her. And so I'm going to ask Pastor Bookstaff to lead us in praying for Chrissy. Let's all join hands across the sanctuary. And Symbola says that what happened next in that prayer group turned into a labor room. There arose a groaning and a sense of de desperation from the prayers. And when he got home, here's what he told Carol. It's over with Chrissy. You would have had to have been there tonight. I tell you, this whole nightmare is finally over. 32 hours later, as he was shaving, his wife Carol came running through the door. Sorry. Go downstairs. Chrissy's here. Chrissy's here. Chrissy, yes, go down. She wants to see you. He ran downstairs. 
He saw his daughter on the floor, rocking on her hands and knees and crying. Cautiously, he spoke her name, Chrissy. She, <laughs> she grabbed his leg. Daddy, Daddy, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against Mommy. Please forgive me. And suddenly she drew back and asked, Daddy, who was praying for me? What do you mean, Chrissy? On Tuesday night, Daddy. Who was praying for me? Sorry. In the middle, in the middle of the night, God woke me up. It showed me I was headed toward this abyss. There was no bottom to it. It scared me to death. I was so frightened. I realized how hard I've been, how wrong, how rebellious. Daddy, tell the truth. Who was praying for me on Tuesday night? He said, I looked into her bloodshot eyes and I recognized I had my daughter back. Now, that's not to say that everything we pray for corporately is going to turn out that way. Okay? But we can confidently say that corporate prayer played a major instrumental role in Chrissy's repentance. And though individual prayer is a, is a point of emphasis in Scripture, for sure, don't ever minimize the importance of individual prayer. It actually feeds corporate prayer. There's also an emphasis in the Scripture on corporate prayer, not the least of which is the Lord's Prayer. I mean, just as we just read, look at the plural pronouns in verses 3 and 4. Give us. Give us. Each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Lead us not into temptation. That's the Lord's prayer. Jesus in that same conversation where he is teaching them what to pray. He's now through a parable going to teach us how to pray and what to expect when we pray that way. First thing we're going to see here in Luke 11, verses 5 to 8, kingdom prayer is a bold prayer. Look at me in verse 5. And he said to them, which of you has a friend who has a friend, will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. 
and he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, that is, his persistence, his audacious persistence, okay? Because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now let me first begin here by noting that the, the pronoun here, you, is plural. Just as he played using, using uh, plural pronouns in the Lord's Prayer, here he is using plural pronouns. So the emphasis is on corporate prayer. We tend to individualize it, but the emphasis here is on corporate prayer. We, we usually run the exhortations in Scripture to pray through our grid of Western individualism. Of course, it does apply individually. And yet, there are many New Testament texts that emphasize the corporate nature of prayer. So, for instance, in Romans chapter 12, verse 12, it says, Paul says to be constant in prayer. That's a plural verb. And so as we approach this text, yes, it can and it should be applied at the individual level. But the emphasis is on corporate prayer. After all, a man approaches his sleeping friend on behalf of another. And the problem here reflects the culture at that time. In first century Palestine, food was not as available as it is today. I was just told this weekend that on a weekend night, you can drive by the cookout at two in the morning and the cars are wrapped around the restaurant. Food is available anytime you want it in Auburn, not in first century Palestine. Additionally, there was a cultural expectation to play a good host, to be a good host. And so the host here has a problem. He has a late night friend, a late night visitor, and he has no food. And he needs that food in order to be a good host to his friend. So the man with the visitor has a choice. He can go boldly to his friend who's in bed but has bread or he can be a bad host. If he decides to call on his neighbor who's in bed, then that neighbor who's in bed has a cultural obligation to be a host to him, to get out of bed and respond. Now, we need to be careful here, and as, as with all parables, if you press the details of the parable, oftentimes you'll end up with bad theology. Jesus is not saying in any way, this is a lesser to greater argument, that God is annoyed when we wake him up 
or that his arm has to be twisted. That's not what he's saying. Again, this is a lesser to greater argument. In fact, the psalmist in Psalm 121 verse 4 says, The Lord will neither slumber nor sleep. In fact, he loves to meet our needs. Psalm 5 verse 12, For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. The point that Jesus is making here in this parable is that if an a frustrated, impatient friend responds to boldness, you can be bold with your gracious God and friend. That's the point, lesser to greater. And this parable also shows us that awareness of need is what drives this kind of prayer. Awareness of need. And remember, this entire conversation was prompted by a disciple asking Jesus, teach us how to pray. And the reason they asked Jesus to teach them how to pray is because they observed for years now that Jesus lived his life in prayer. Even in Luke, it tells us, for instance, in Luke chapter Six that he, he stayed up all night in prayer. All night he continued in prayer to God. Jesus was the most dependent man who ever lived. In John 5, 19, we saw that he said, I can do nothing of my own accord. He lived in complete dependency on the Father as expressed and evidenced by his persistent prayer. Too often we, we see prayer, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that we know that prayer is a spiritual discipline, but we see it merely as a discipline. Uh, many of you will gather this week for prayer week, and I will be grateful for that, but we will, we will often see that as a discipline I need to attend to. Discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness, the Apostle Paul writes. Prayer is a discipline. But for Jesus, it was not a discipline. It was an act of dependency. We fail to pray as we should because we are too self-sufficient and we wrongly perceive God's insufficiency. And that wasn't Jesus. And that's why the disciples said, teach us to pray. And it's in understanding how destitute, how weak, how needy and dependent we really are and how sufficient and good God really is that animates what Jesus calls here impudence. Maybe your translation reads persistence, but it's more than persistence. It's an audacious persistence. And notice, I love this in verse eight, because of his impudence, because of his audacious persistence, his boldness, he, that is the man asleep, 
and we know God doesn't sleep, this is a lesser to greater argument, he will rise and give. I love that. Does that not strengthen your resolve to pray? He will rise and give. I've got those in brackets. Rise and give. That's what we need from our God and friend. That is Jesus' promise. That's why when God's people pray with impudence, with audacious boldness and persistence, God's name is at stake. I say that because that's the promise Jesus is making. The way God, our friend in this particular part of the parable, takes care of his children, takes care of his friends, is a witness to a lost and dying world that he is worthy of being trusted. He is worthy. Now, now why do we have to persist? Why do we have to be bold and persist that way? Well, persistence in prayer is not an attempt to change a tight-fisted God's mind. That's not the purpose of persistent prayer. But oftentimes, it's to get ourselves in the place spiritually where he can trust us with his answer. Brings us to the second part of this passage. Kingdom prayer, yes, is bold prayer, and all of this is related. Kingdom prayer is persistent prayer. Verse 9, and I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And then just in case you missed it, and he does this for emphasis, he repeats himself in a different way. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. All three verbs are continuous, okay? You don't just knock one time. All right? You don't just seek one day. All right? You don't just ask one time. Uh, the verbs are continuous. In other words, he's saying, don't come to God at midnight. You can come to God at midnight, but stay before his face. As the reformers called it, quorum Deo, before the face of God. Always be asking, keep asking. Keep seeking, keep knocking. We continue to knock at the door of our father's house, which happens to be a castle because he's the king and he can answer us according to our need. And note how this prayer uh, is fulfilled when we do this. Ask is followed by given, seek, is followed by find, knock, is followed by opened. Now, in this day of health, wealth, and prosperity preaching that is rampant throughout the world, is this a blank check? No. 
It's already been qualified by verses two to four. Don't take this passage out of contact. When we ask that God's name be hallowed as the fundamental motivation of our prayers, when we ask that God's kingdom come, which is the saving reign of his king, Jesus Christ, over a lost and dying world, when that is the fundamental motivations of our prayers, then we have the hope of his fulfilling our request. And now he's going to illustrate that in the final part of this passage. Kingdom prayer is bold. Prayer, it's persistent prayer. It's also fruitful prayer. Verse 11. Now he's going to change the mind of metaphor. From friend to father. That's a pretty good deal. We have a friend and our heavenly father. Now let me just say this. He's not a father to every person. The assumption here is that you have bowed the knee to his provision for your sin. In Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior, okay? This is someone who has been adopted into God's kingdom by grace, by repenting of their sin, humbling themselves, and receiving God's gift in the Son, who lived the life you and I could never live, and died the death that you and I deserve, and was raised for our justification, okay? That's who he's speaking to here. This is a promise to those who can call God Father because of Jesus Christ, their Savior. And notice, he says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? So he uses two images here. Um, what father would give a lesser gift to his son, to his daughter for that matter? And rest assured, every father here would agree that nothing blesses you more than to bless your children. Okay? And God wants us to understand that he delights in blessing his sons and daughters more even than earthly fathers. All right? We're going to see that here um, in just a moment. Richard Phillips, in his book, Turning Your World Upside Down, he tells what apparently is a true story of a man who had this great financial need. And so he, he goes to Alexander the Great, who directs him to his royal treasurer, and he tells the treasurer, give him what he, he wants and he needs. And the man tells the treasurer the, this large amount that he needed, and the treasurer comes back to Alexander the Great and he's kind of uptight. He said, this man is asking for a lot. And Alexander responded, he has treated me 
as a king in asking, and so I shall be as a king to him in giving. Amen. And that, that application, that illustration rather, illustrates the promise that Jesus is giving us here at the end of this parable. Look with me in verse 13. If you then, who are evil, now who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the disciples. He's speaking to followers of Christ. All right? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? It's unimaginable that men would give, that fathers would give evil gifts to their children. No, fathers give good gifts, even though Jesus says they are evil. Now, don't miss this. Even when he's talking to disciples, and he's speaking of the good that fathers do, Jesus is mindful that in comparison to a holy and righteous God, they are evil. In eight, human sinfulness is for Jesus a given. And Jesus isn't even talking about an absentee dad here. He's talking about fathers who are all in on their sons and daughters who seek to bless their sons and daughters. This is a dad who's present, but the Bible depicts all mankind as falling short of the glory of God. And so in that regard, we are evil in comparison to infinite holiness. I mean, think about a, a great athlete. Let's just say Michael Jordan. And if Michael Jordan and I were to stand on the seashore and we were pointed towards Europe, which one has a better shot of jumping over the Atlantic? Well, he'd probably get a little closer to Europe than me, but not a whole lot closer in comparison to the Gulf, okay? Some people are more moral than other people, but in comparison to an infinitely holy and righteous God, Jesus can say rightly, we are evil. And here is Jesus' argument. If a sinful father provides his children with nothing but good things, how much more will the good and holy and righteous and heavenly father who is free from evil give his children that which is good. In other words, if A is true, verses 11 and 12, then how much more B, verse 13. And this good is not left in general terms. We may not like in our flesh what he says here, but this is good news. Here's what he says. He will give the Holy Spirit. Now this is kind of a twist because up to now in this conversation on prayer, Jesus has not even mentioned the Holy Spirit. This drives home to us that this kind of prayer is not a blank check. 
to indulge your hedonism and your selfishness and your self-absorption and your idolatry. That's not it at all. This kind of praying that he's talking about is concerned above all with spiritual realities. In fact, if you are like me, let's be honest, the first part of this prayer, it slays me, it convicts me. Praying like this, Father, hallowed be your name. That one line drives me to conviction because I realize I'm not as jealous for God's name as I should be. I'm a whole lot more concerned with my interest than the name of the Father. How about the next line? Your kingdom come, where the reign of Christ comes to bear on all brokenness. Yes, that's in me, but not as fervent as it should be. And that's why the promise of the Holy Spirit is the greatest and the ultimate gift. Because as we pray these things boldly, and we pray them persistently, here's what God the Father does. In the Son, he begins to form by the Spirit these very desires in us. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. In other words, we ask for the gift, and God gives us the giver. And from the Holy Spirit comes everything we need. Of course, that doesn't mean we don't pray for physical and material things, health, finances. We don't, it, that doesn't mean that because give us this day our daily bread. That includes all of those things, sustenance and provision. But God here is promising himself in order to get to the place where our prayers and our priorities are centered on what matters, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And here's what Jesus promises elsewhere. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things that you're concerned about will be given and added to you. And what Jesus is promising by giving us the spirit when we pray in this way is a transformation of our priorities and our desires. Do you get that? And here's the, here's the issue here as we close. The need here was precipitated by community. He didn't get there just by isolation. Yes, should we pray in isolation? Of course we should. And yet here, it came through community. This need is not personal. This man came to that door at midnight because of someone else. It was the need of someone else. It was the need of his friend that drove him to this house at midnight. And here's the thing. Without that need, which was precipitated by community, his door knocking doesn't happen. Do you see that? It took community to get him to the place to knock on that door. There's so many benefits to individual prayer. This is one of the benefits of 
community and corporate prayer. Community life grows our prayer lives. Let's close with this thought um, from A.C. Dixon. And as we come into our prayer week, and I want you to know, don't, I do not want anyone to feel guilty if they can't be here on prayer week. Some of you just can't do it logistically. And, and, and I, I, we understand that. My goodness. It just can't happen for some of you. But if you can, I want you to hear this thought from A.C. Dixon. When we depend upon organization, we get what organizations can do. When we depend upon education, we get what education can do. When we depend upon man, we get what man can do. But when we depend upon prayer, we get what God can do. Now, with Jim Cymbala's church and their prayers, at the instrumental level, they got, they got what God can do. Because only God can change a rebel's heart. And Lakeview for decades have gotten what God can do. Because I would say Lakeview is a praying church. But my desire is that we grow in our prayer. That we grow in our dependency. And we will see increasingly more of what God can do. As Adam and the musicians come forward, I said earlier, this is a prayer for those who can call God Father through the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. This passage, though, remember, is situated in a larger book that's called the Gospel of Luke. Why is it called the Gospel of Luke? Because every narrative in some way is intended to show us why we need a Messiah who doesn't just model things for us like prayer. We need a Messiah that will be crucified and raised from the grave. And the reality is, until you come to him, the Father, through this one who was crucified and raised from the grave, you have no access to God for prayer. And so we want to give you an opportunity this morning. We're going to have pastors standing here at the end of the aisles. Maybe you realize I cannot call him Father, and that's evidenced by the fact that I don't pray. I don't pray unless I'm in an emergency, but I don't ask, I don't knock, I don't seek as Jesus has said here, but I want to get to that place. It starts by coming to the Son of God in repentance and faith. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.